This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This podcast is sponsored by Fisher and Pykel Healthcare. Fisher and Pykel Healthcare have more than 50 years of innovation and development in supporting respiratory needs across the hospital and home, improving patient care and outcomes. Today, Fisher and Pykel Healthcare's medical devices are used in the treatment of about 14 million patients worldwide. They truly understand the needs of our youngest patients who have developing respiratory systems, which is why they have a full portfolio of respiratory support solutions for neonates, infants, and children. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. We are back this Monday with a special episode uh, looking at a topic in neonatology that um, we are all dealing with, which involves managing respiratory distress in neonates. And we're focusing on aspects of flow versus pressure in how we deliver support to neonates. So we're very excited to be joined by a former incubator guest, one of uh, the giants of neonatology, Dr. Richard Polin. Dr. Polin, thank you so much for making the time to be on with us today. It's my pleasure. Daphna, how are you? I skipped you, sorry. That's okay. I, I mean, it's it's always such an honor to have uh, neonatology greats like Dr. Polin in the studio. So I know yeah. we're both starstruck, so... <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. I mean, when the opportunity presented itself, we definitely did not uh, shy away from it. We jumped uh, on it and, and we're very excited to be talking to you about this. Dr. Polin, I think the first place I would like to start is really having a broad overview of what we are actually dealing with. And what I mean by that is that when when you are faced with a baby that is in respiratory distress, can you give us like what your differential looks like and what are the things you're thinking of? in terms of what could be going on with this patient? Sure. The most common reason we see for respiratory distress simply has to do with slow transitional physiology. As you know, babies start with a fluid-filled lung, uh, with lower pulmonary blood flow and less systemic blood flow during the transition. The uh, placenta is removed, cardiac output increases, and pulmonary blood flow increases. But during that time, it is very common to see babies with some degree of respiratory distress, hypoxemia, retractions uh, that gradually disappears. And I, I usually consider that to be slow transitional physiology. If it is due to pathology, there are a variety of causes uh, from something quite simple, such as transient of the newborn, which is delayed reabsorption of lung fluid or respiratory distress syndrome, a coronary mass aspiration, uh, malformations in the lung, or cardiac causes of respiratory distress, 
uh, congenital heart malformations. Those are probably the most common causes, pathologies that we encounter in the NICU. That's interesting. And so the reason I'm asking that question is because some people may think, what's even the point of entertaining a differential? Because it feels like these babies are treated pretty much always the same way, no matter, like, it seems like all these kids, especially when they're born and they're full term, it's like, well, just start on some bubble CPAP and call it a day. Is there a blanket approach to the management of respiratory distress in the neonate? Or does your differential influence how you will take care of these babies? No, yes and no. So the immediate response to baby respiratory distress, besides making sure their vital signs are okay, and their oxygenation is okay through pulse oximetry, is to provide some minimal level of respiratory support. That usually involves CPAP. At Columbia, we use bubble CPAP, but there are other ways of providing CPAP. Some centers might use high-flow nasal cannula as an alternative. So it's stabilization. And then once the baby's stabilized, you go through your differential diagnosis and decide whether further interventions are necessary depending on what disease process you think is going on. Obviously, if it's cardiac disease, you're going to probably end up getting an echocardiogram to evaluate for cardiac malformations. If it's suspected pulmonary disease, uh, you're going to be getting a chest X-ray and uh, then making your next step in care, depending on what you think the primary disease process is going, as is happening. Um, I think that's a great approach. Um, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about uh, the baby's pertinent past medical history, which really is just when they were a fetus as a dyad. And so I wonder what aspects of the maternal history, delivery factors that give you a better understanding of what respiratory pathology is at play. That's a great question. History is critically important. If you're suspecting infection, you want to look for uh, historical features in the mother's history suggestive of infection, such as preterm premature rupture membranes, prolonged rupture membranes, signs and symptoms of chorioamnionitis, uh, as defined by the American College of Obstetric and Gynecology. Was there uh, meconium in the amniotic fluid, which makes the diagnosis of uh, meconium aspiration syndrome more common? Is it a preterm delivery, a very preterm delivery, where respiratory distress syndrome might be the most common pathology we encounter? Or is it a late preterm delivery? For example, a baby delivered by a cesarean section where a transient kidney of the newborn might be more common. And uh, again, uh, was there normal amounts of amniotic fluid, decreased amounts of amniotic fluid, which might suggest uh, pulmonary hypoplasia? or excess amniotic fluid, which might, might suggest a GI malformation of the baby. I am wondering, Dr. Polin, with your experience, what are some of the big turns that we've taken as a field in, in how we manage respiratory distress in the NICU? And, and how have these different steps in, in how we've changed how we approach this disease what do they tell us about our understanding of the different pathologies? Knowing your vast experience, I'm just curious, when you're looking back at how we treat this today and how we treat this when earlier in your career, what is your what is your perspective on, on how, how far we've come? So when you say earlier in my career, that really means the 1970s. And in the 1970s, that was the beginning of CPAP use. Uh, and when I went from Columbia to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, they weren't using any CPAP at that time. 
and babies with severe distress were just intubated and ventilated. It was the pre-surfactant era, and that was ventilating a baby who has RDS without surfactant is a recipe for creating a baby with chronic lung disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Surfactants were developed in the 1980s uh, and revolutionized the care of preterm babies with respiratory uh, distress syndrome uh, and decreased mortality uh, from respiratory uh, distress syndrome. At that time, we had concurrent increase in the use of antenatal steroids, which decreased the frequency and severity of RDS, also decreased mortality and interventricular hemorrhage. So a variety of things happened. But first thought before ventilating uh, babies for a long period of time was to give surfactant. And the next iteration, I think, came from the randomized clinical trials comparing non-invasive ventilation, which again had its origins in the 1970s, with standard uh, ways of uh, intubation uh, and surfactant, showing that uh, the outcome, that outcome being death or chronic lung disease, was less in babies who were treated with non-invasive ventilation rather than intubation and surfactant and then ventilation. And the final iteration, um, which is still being studied, is the use of different ways of um, giving surfactant instead of intubation, giving it through something called LISA, which is less invasive surfactant administration. So the we've moved away from just ventilating without surfactant to ventilating with surfactant to first considering non-invasive ventilation and then refining which, if we have to give surfactant, what's the best way uh, to give it. So that's what's happening with RDS. And in the other severe disease, which is McCartney aspiration syndrome, we've moved away from the 1970s from intubating and suctioning every baby born through meconium to selectively uh, intubating babies who appear to have difficulty with ventilation, uh, but not doing routine suctioning of the airway of babies born through meconium. So that's a big change, perhaps in the last 10 years, that's revolutionized uh, what we're doing. I appreciate the the historical context. And, you know, we've got so many challenges of modern medicine, but I cannot imagine working in the ICU, you know, before the days of CPAP and, and surfactant. It certainly was a different time. Yeah, very different time. And mortality was much higher. And mm-hmm. the outcomes were not as good. Babies were sicker, uh, ventilated for longer periods of time, and, and many ended up with chronic lung disease. And you've alluded to this a little bit, especially uh, how we have changed the trajectory of RDS because of surfactant. But maybe you can talk a little bit about how kind of the pathophysiology itself of RDS has kind of changed over the years, especially as we are bringing in a younger and more immature population. If we go down to babies at 22, 23, 24 weeks gestation, they have alveolar ducts, and they may have alveolar sacs, but they do not have true alveoli. And at that time, surfactant production is just beginning. And if you lack surfactant, if a baby lacks surfactant lying in the alveolus, at end expiration, uh, this tendency is to collapse those structures. And that's what causes the reticular granule appearance we see on chest x-ray in babies with RDS. The presence of surfactant decreases surface tension and allows and allows those structures to remain patent. 
But true alveolar development is not completed to about 35 to 36 weeks gestation. So our very immature babies are working with alveolar ducts, alveolar sacs, but not true alveoli, and in probably insufficient, not zero amounts of surfactant, but insufficient amounts of, of surfactant. And in addition to surfactant, there's other structural abnormalities in the lung or preterm babies, which makes it harder to um, for them to continue uh, to deal with respiratory distress. Now we're we're getting into really the the management of RDS. I wanted to ask you about how important is it for clinicians to realize that management has to be done right. I feel like you were describing how in the early days of your career, one of the outcomes that you were facing was mortality. And that's something that is quite striking to me because we, since during my training, the expectation was that a baby, especially a full-term baby in RDS, was not expected, is not expected to die by no means. And so it feels like we've discussed some of these different modalities. We've talked about CPAP, we've talked about intubation, we've talked about surfactant, and we've talked about all forms of, of nasal cannula. But in your opinion, why is it important to think critically about these babies and about the interventions that we are using in light of what maybe morbidities are at play and, and, and why that matters for, for these babies and their families? Sure. Every intervention in the NICU has a, a cost, a risk of side effects. And I think in my last podcast, I think I said, don't just do something, stand there. And before you start to do something that's invasive in a newborn, you have to ask yourself, is the therapy that I'm applying going to have a benefit or does the risk of a complication outweigh um, any benefit from what I'm doing? For example, ventilation. Ventilation clearly, even short-term ventilation, probably has uh, the um, ability to injure the lung and set up an inflammatory result uh, response, which ultimately results in uh, chronic lung disease. So ventilation carries with it uh, a risk for a baby. Surfactant carries with a risk. You're giving a liquid down in the lung, and whether you're giving that surfactant through LISA or through intubation and pouring it down through the endotracheal tube, it's, those are pretty stressful procedures for a newborn baby. I know we try to do it as gently as possible, but for example, in babies who are getting surfactant, people have demonstrated that the EEG becomes flatter or flat during that process. And I think that even with LISA, it's a stressful procedure. You're using a laryngoscope uh, to cause a significant cardiopulmonary compromise for the baby. And non-invasive ventilation is not without complications, although we generally don't see air leak or pneumothoraces with something like CPAP. They do occur, and um, uh, if you, depending on the kind of CPAP you're using, there's a risk of nasal irritation or nasal septal um, compromise. So every therapy that we use in the newborn baby uh, has a risk of complications. And that's why I, I go back and try to say, before you think about doing something which is invasive, even something simple as CPAP, ask yourself, what is the benefit for the baby? Am I going to, de am, and, uh, am I dealing with the pathophysiology of the disease that I'm uh, encountering? That's uh, such a, an interesting point, because I think that as neonatologists right now, we are asked to work really hard. We're, we're covering more and more babies, and, and we have more and more administrative tasks. And, and we often get these calls from the delivery, the labor and delivery suites saying, hey, there's this baby, he's having slight respiratory distress. And, and really, 
the reflex could be, oh, just just let's start some CPAP, let's bring this baby to the NICU as a solution without sometimes considering all the things you just mentioned, which are what am I doing to this baby in terms of intervention? What are the potential uh, complications? I am wondering in your opinion, since we started this discussion talking about transitioning and how respiratory distress could be an issue of slow transitioning, what is in your experience a good cutoff to say, all right, I'm going to watch this baby because maybe that's just transitional. And I've seen people say, oh, I'm going to wait 15 minutes. Some people wait a few hours. And I'm just curious in your experience, what is what is the right time to say, okay, this is no longer something that can be just watched and, and that just needs now some form of intervention? So I guess I have two answers for that question. One is there's absolutely no number that I can give you that says this baby should be over its transition. But for me, four to six hours seems to be a reasonable time to say, is the baby's respiratory distress improving? Is the baby looking more active if I'm thinking about infection? So for me, I wait four to six hours before embarking on uh, a more invasive therapy for that baby or perhaps starting antibiotics for that baby. Mm -hmm. And during that time, the baby should be getting better. So in other words, if the, if the FIR2 is 30% and then two hours later it's 50%, that's a baby who I'm going to intervene much sooner than if a baby is at, in 40 or 50% and, and two hours later it's in 30% and if the respiratory distress seems to be getting better. During that time, it's okay to use something as simple as CPAP, which we commonly do during that transition, but usually nothing more invasive because we're just expecting the baby to make its transition. And many babies end up with 21% uh, oxygen. So overall, four to six hours seems to be a reasonable time to watch the baby before embarking on something different. I think that's... um. You know, it speaks to your expertise and obviously your experience really about the art of medicine. It's simpler, right, to just bring the baby over, put them on CPAP, start IV fluids and antibiotics. Um, it's it's much more work for the clinician, I think, to sit at the bedside and be patient and, um, you know, not intervene, um, even though it might be the right thing for the baby. And I'm wondering if you can share kind of some of those lessons from your career about, you know, waiting and, and being being successful, waiting and not being successful or having intervened and then feeling like, gosh, I really didn't need to do all of that. So you say something really important, and that is sitting at the bedside. Mm -hmm. Clinicians can't look at a baby and say, all right, let's wait for the transition to occur and walk away. Good clinicians have to be at the bedside and watch the baby's signs and symptoms. Are they imp improving? Is the baby, um, are the retractions becoming less? Is the FiO2, inspired traction concentration, improving? But you have to be at the bedside or within a few feet of the bedside to decide what's happening with the baby. You can't do that by intermittently walking back and forth. You're preaching to the choir here. Daphna is a is a hoverer. She loves to hover around the bedside. So, like to, to my to my nurse's dismay, they they want me to leave the bedside, and I just that's not how I doctor. Don't leave the bedside. Watch watch the baby uh, closely, and um, so I think that's how you practice good medicine is by watching the baby. Uh, watching the baby breathe even uh, uh, under a CPAP. 
And one of the common mistakes I see in my own NICU is a fellow will say, oh, I put the baby on CPAP and the FIR2 is uh, 40% and the saturations are approaching 90%. And I say, oh, baby must be doing great. And then I put my uh, stethoscope on the baby's chest and I say, this baby's not moving in the air. Mm-hmm. It's not ventilating. Mm-hmm. So the appreciation of ventilation, and especially appreciation of RDS, I think is a, a lost art. And I say, get a gas or let's do something different to improve ventilation. But physical examination and, and careful observation are the keys in babies making that transition and knowing when to intervene, you know, uh, with more invasive therapies. Since since we we we've talked about this question of respiratory distress, I think what's interesting to me right now is that um, neonatology always felt like we were dealing with the population of babies, and it was one and the same. And we we may we may have said, okay, we have our full terms and we have our our preterms, but I think now the care of ne- of neonates is segmented so strikingly between the different gestational age groups. We have the post-terms, we have the term babies, we have the late preterms, we have the preterms and then the extremely low birth weight infants. I am just curious about, I want to start and maybe go go one at a time. The late preterm infants are the ones, in my opinion, that are the most challenging, especially when it comes to respiratory distress. Because as you said, we're not exactly sure what is supposedly expected versus just pathological. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice as to how should we look at a baby that is born with some degree of respiratory distress at these late preterm gestation, like 34 weeks and so on? So I think here, physical examination is key. Is it a baby who is breathing at 80 or 100 times per minute, may not be grunting or maybe have intermittent grunting? Uh, it has retractions, and when you measure blood gases, they have a, some degree of hypocarbia. They're 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 ventilating well, but may have an oxygen need. And uh, the chest X-ray has signs compatible with tracheotomy of the newborn. Those babies do well in TTN. The the misnomer is the first T is transient, because some of those babies can be ill for days, three four days, and some of those mm-hmm. babies require high oxygen concentrations. Fortunately, um, I think many obstetricians are now giving antenatal steroids to babies who are considered late preterm based on the ALPS trial, which showed a decreased admission to the NICU for respiratory distress. And so many of our babies have milder disease, and those steroids, I think, help to um, activate the uh, uh, sodium channels in the lung and help to remove lung water. So the diseases we're seeing are relatively mild. Um, so that disease is usually just treated non-invasively with some form of uh, non-invasive ventilation. In, in terms of, um, treatment of babies with RDS, one of aspects of, of the treatment involves ruling out pneumonia and other forms of infection. And the question that always comes up is, well, could a baby born preterm not be in respiratory distress? And how do, when do we interpret respiratory distress as a form of, of, of illness that may have infectious origins versus saying, no, this is just a physiologic response to being born early. Um, I, I know this This is you, there may not be a, a correct answer, but I'm just curious as to when do you, as, as a clinician and, and with your experience, draw the line and say, well, 
this is what I accept for a baby born preterm in terms of them having some difficulty breathing versus this needs to be covered from other standpoints like an infectious workup, antibiotics, and so on? So that's a great question. So um, we've already talked about historical information, which could suggest infection. Uh, Choriamnitis using the current ACOG criteria, not just fever in the mother, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and prolonged rupture membranes and, and pre-prom, preterm premature rupture membranes. And then we get a baby. If it's a critically ill baby, meaning that it's a baby you had to intubate and ventilate right from the word go with severe uh, respiratory distress syndrome, I think all those babies get treated with antibiotics because they're so ill and you never want to miss a baby, even when they're not maternal risk factors for infection. uh, You don't want to miss a a possible infectious complication. That's a small subgroup because most of the babies have other varying, less severe respiratory distress syndrome. And uh, if there are no risk factors for uh, infection in those babies, um, I think the, as for example, the babies born by electrocesarian section for maternal indications, I think the Committee of Fetus and Newborn Criteria would say, don't treat with antibiotics, just observe those babies. If there are some risk factors for infection other than chorioamnionitis, it's unclear whether you should treat babies with antibiotics. And, just to put a, pl- a uh, plug in for an ongoing trial, there is the NANO trial, NICU antibiotics and outcome trial, which is randomizing babies whose mothers do not have chorionitis, mm. babies not born by electrocesarian section, to receive antibiotics or placebo. So we don't have an answer to that question, but I think that in the majority of babies, it's very safe uh, to wait before administering antibiotics. The one exception being if the mother has chorionitis, you should not wait. Get a blood culture and start the baby on broad-spectrum antibiotics. I think that's very helpful. Um, in, in particular, I agree with Ben. Those late preterms where we say, well, the, or, the, or even the you know moderately preterm infant, we say, could, could this be prematurity or, or could it be something else? Um, we'd love to get your opinion on obviously the the changing landscape with the you know extremely low birth weight infant. You know, there's a lot of debate in the community about which babies need intubation right away, which babies can we wait on, which babies uh, are too small or too unstable for Lisa and need to be intubated, or you know which can we manage non-invasively, sometimes even without surfactant, especially after the administration of antenatal steroids and some of the other fetal stressors that mature the lungs. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts about the management of those tiny babies. So I guess you're talking about babies 22 through 24 weeks gestation. Yeah. And the new number in all that is is a baby 22 weeks gestation. Mm -hmm. We all know the Iowa approach, which is very protocolized about ventilation of those babies. Um, I don't think we know the right way to approach those babies with ventilation. In my NICU, we would always try non-invasive ventilation first if the baby's breathing spontaneously. And in that range of 22 through 24 weeks gestation, babies will do well about 30% of the time using non-invasive ventilation. About a third need intubation immediately because they're so sick, and about a third will eventually decompensate. We do not use NIPPV uh, um, routinely in babies' RDS. We use it post-extubation, but not use it as a therapy 
and uh, pre-intubation, uh, NIPPV sending non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Uh, so we would always try non-invasive ventilation. For those babies that do need ventilation, I, I, I don't know if we need, or I don't know if we know the right way to ventilate those babies. The one which is most appealing to me is high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Uh, I've heard Anton Vayakram say that um, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation is CPAP with a wiggle. I, 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 like, I that. like that. Yeah. I like that thought. And <laughs> I think uh, using non-invasive, using high-frequency oscillatory ventilation may be, I put the word in quotes, maybe. Uh, the right way to treat those very tiny babies who need non-invasive ventilation. We don't know, but he has great success uh, in his unit in uh, the Netherlands uh, managing babies in that fashion. Um, I love actually your ability to say we don't know. <laughs> I feel like so many in the community are, you know, saying like, the, you know, this is the right way to do it. And the other part of the community is saying this is the right way to do it. Um, you know, again, given your um, career and how many times we've been right, but also been wrong in the management of babies, um, what do you say? What do you think is the best approach while we're, you know, still trying to figure it out and having those conversations? Again, think of what you're doing. What's like least likely to cause morbidity or mortality in the baby? I'll give you an example of a mistake that we did earlier in my career. In babies with pulmonary hypertension, we say meconium aspiration, pulmonary hypertension, we used to hyperventilate those babies Mm -hmm. and drive their CO2 down to 20 or 18 or even lower. And that was it worked to deal with the pulmonary hypertension many times, but left the baby with serious lung injury. And many of those babies ended up hearing loss. So Mm -hmm. that was a mistake we did when I was at shop for many years. Until we realized that was not the right approach uh, for babies with PPHM. So I think you decide on a therapy by looking at the baby and thinking about the baby's underlying lung disease. If it's just a very immature baby with respiratory distress syndrome, use the least toxic therapy you can get away with. And for me, starting with non-invasive ventilation, CPAP is what we use at Columbia. And then if a baby does require ventilation, Think about using the lowest pressures you can um, uh, and uh, to ventilate that baby. And I, I, again, I like the idea of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in the very tiniest babies, which is what we, we tend to do at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I have to share uh, a pet peeve of mine because as we're talking about using non-invasive ventilation in some of our smaller babies, even as a trial, I have this fear that I will be the clinician who managed the baby that's like 25 weeks, because I don't know if 22 weeks really matters in that, in that scenario, but manages it like a 25-weeker or non-invasive, and this baby doesn't get surfactant in the first day or so. And I know that if that I can get probably, according to the evidence, the most quote-unquote bang for my buck with surfactant in the early phase of respiratory distress. And so I'm worried that I'm like, am I are we going to be the, the the unit that has not offered the potential for surfactant therapy to a 25-weeker because we were arduously trying to maintain this baby on non-invasive? And I feel like the evidence should tells me that I'm, this is unfounded, but I'm just curious, do, do you, how do you feel about that? Like, are we really going to try to keep this baby on non-invasive? Because it's even the ones who do okay, 
it's never really a pleasant, smooth ride. It's always, you're always worried like, oh my God, are they failing non-invasive? Are they failing non-invasive? That's always the question. And so how do you negotiate that where you are having the the surfactant always looming in the background saying, oh man, should I just put down the tube and, and give that? Yeah. Or we have kind of those middle of the road babies where they stay kind of prolonged on respiratory support and you're like, but they didn't get surfactant. Maybe if they'd gotten surfactant, would we and be then, And then the, the parents course? come back to you maybe two weeks later and they said, why hasn't my baby gotten this surfactant that every other preterm kid supposedly gets? And you're like, oh boy, how am I going to explain that? <laughs> you both are great questions. Surfactant is a <laughs> therapy. Uh, when we looked at trying to predict which babies would need intubation and surfactant, a number of years ago, and the same was done by the group in Milburn, it was very hard, nearly impossible to predict which babies would fail non-invasive ventilation. Mm-hmm. Clearly, babies who have severe whiteout on x-ray and uh, are needing a high concentration of oxygen, uh, those babies need some sort of intervention. At Columbia, we, we tend to choose a, a cutoff FIO2 of 60%. So if a baby is increasing, getting worse, and we reach that threshold of 60%, or the pH is less than 7.2 with a pH greater than 65, we tend to intervene with another therapy at that point. Mm-hmm. But other centers use lower in, lower thresholds for intervention. I think it's worth looking at the Optimist A trial done in Melbourne, published in the last two years. So, yeah. Yeah, in, in JAMA, in which they intervened uh, giving surfactant through mist or ELISA when babies run 30% oxygen, showing not a significant benefit for death or chronic lung disease, but individually, chronic lung disease was less and need for ventilation was less in babies who had that intervention at 30% oxygen. I don't think we know when to intervene with, with surfactant in a baby on non-invasive ventilation. I guess it depends on your skills at using non-invasive ventilation in your NICU. Some NICUs have greater skills than others at keeping babies off uh, conventional mechanical ventilation. But we have found that 60%, using a threshold of 60%, does not increase morbidity or mortality. But I understand the bind role in if a baby ends up getting more severe lung disease, ventilated two weeks of life, and the question is, would the baby have done better with surfactant mm-hmm. early on? Perhaps. We just don't. I don't know. I don't think we know that answer. But it's worth looking at the Optimist A trial. I think you bring up a, another good point, though, um, about your unit's criteria, which, again, is different from other units in the country, but about having a standard protocol for a unit, like a threshold that, you know, everybody does an intervention. What are the benefits for having kind of this standardization across a unit? I think it, it's, a, it's a way of looking at outcomes and decreasing variability. So if you're, if you're pay, in a unit and you're picking 40% as your threshold or 30%, which I think is low, at oxygen concentration for intervention, it gives you a way of looking at your outcomes in a standardized fashion. But if one clinician is using 30%, next clinician is using 60%, it becomes problematic to say what is the best route for those babies. And by the way, in the original trials comparing non-invasive ventilation to surfactant through an endotracheal tube, uh, these uh, support trial used a lower threshold than the trial out of Australia. 
uh, because that was a coin trial out of Australia, which used 60%. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a lot of variability in the world, but decreasing the variability within a NICU, I think, is worthwhile in terms of looking at outcomes. Our last question for you today, Dr. Polin, um, and I think that would be a great segue to our next episode tomorrow, is related to how clinicians need to understand what kind of therapy is actually being delivered at the bedside. I feel like um, the from a technological standpoint, there's a lot of ways now that we can deliver non-invasive ventilation or CPAP. And I think that as clinicians, we are, again, so busy and we we, we have such a, a nice team that we can often delegate that to our respiratory therapist and we say, oh, start CPAP. And it's not always the same, whether you're delivering CPAP via a, uh, a bubble uh, interface, whether you're delivering it via a ventilator, uh, what kind of interface you're using at the at the the baby's face, without going into the the details, because we'll we'll cover those. How important is it for people to actually be competent in understanding the various differences in what they're doing? Because I have a feeling, based on what you've told us this far, doing the right thing early on can really impact the following steps when it comes to management and decision making for these babies. I think you raise a critical issue that all non-invasive ventilation is not identical. You have to think, is it the right interface that's going to deliver CPAP effectively? Is it the right generator for the CPAP? Is it a um, bubble CPAP where you create expiratory pressure using a uh, a, a fluid uh, where the expiratory of the limb is put into a volume of fluid down to a certain number of centimeters? Is it a fluidic flip device? Uh, which de- supposedly has decreased resistance during expiration, uh, is it a ventilator? And there are different ways of applying CPAP. They all have physiological differences. And before you choose one, for example, ventilator CPAP versus bubble CPAP, you have to think to yourself and say, is this the right way to doing it for a baby? Am I getting the biggest bang for the buck? So mm-hmm. I'm sure you're going to talk about that coming up, but I, There are significant differences demonstrated in babies, in in vitro models, and in animal studies. Thank you very much, because I think this is really where where we're hoping to take the discussion next as to how do we we excel at providing the most optimal treatment for these babies in order to reduce both mortality, morbidity, and also the need for any additional therapy. So thank you. Thank you for for mentioning that. And and, uh, I think this will be a great segue for uh, our next episode. Um, Dr. Polin, thank you very much for, for making the time to be with us today. We look forward to chatting with you again tomorrow. Um, Daphna, thank you uh, for being here as always. Thank you. I, I was delighted. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.
Dr. Richard Pollan, Dr. Lonnie Miner, and Dr. Amy Miner received honorariums from Fisher and Peichel Healthcare for their participation in this podcast. The matters expressed in this podcast are based on the personal experience of the physician and do not necessarily represent the views of Fisher and Peichel Healthcare or any of its employees or directors. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.